We're going to turn for our scripture reading at this stage of the service to the Gospel of Mark, and Mark and to the chapter 1 of that book. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to commence our reading at the verse number 1 as well. I think I told our brother we'll just be reading up to the verse 15, but uh, glancing down at the passage again, I think we'll maybe add a few extra verses to the end. I hope that doesn't cause too much problem for online and, and whatever's maybe going on in the background here. Uh, but verses 1 to 20 we'll read, and we trust that as we read those together that God will encourage you. And perhaps something that I'll not be preaching on or dealing with this morning, maybe the Holy Spirit will use it in the reading of Scripture to jump out to you and to lead you and to guide you into some new way or to encourage you in the way that you've been walking thus far in your life. So Mark's gospel, beginning there at verse number one. The Holy Word of God tells us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle of skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to soup down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel." Now as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants, and went after him. Amen. We do trust that God will add his blessing into the public reading of his holy and his inspired word. The Gospel of Mark portrays a Christ or Jesus to a people in such a way that draws our attention primarily to the fact that he is a servant. He came into the world to serve the people of God, his people, and the world in general. The other apostles and the, uh, the epistles, but primarily the Gospels, uh, would highlight various other parts of his character to emphasize. Uh, for example, if you were to just take Matthew and, and Luke and John as the Gospels themselves, they'll highlight him more of as, as a king. They'll emphasize the fact that he came to rule as king in his kingdom. Uh, John, for example, comes in, in a more theological way, doctrinally speaks about this man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to be the Son of God, the Word, 
that was manifest in the flesh for the purpose of saving his people from their sins at a specific and an appointed time. And there is the prophet, the priest, and the king. There is the son of God, the God-man seen throughout the scriptures. And Mark doesn't ignore those other things, but it seems to many commentators, and it seems to me going through the book of Mark, that his main and primary purpose is to show Jesus Christ doing something. Jesus Christ working. Jesus Christ serving. Him preaching here in this passage, but that's not all that he does. A number of years ago, I began a series on Mark's gospel, and just at the middle part of 2023, I finished that series. But God's led this passage back upon my mind again for you for some reason this morning. Jesus Christ preaching. The subject of preaching is what I want to preach on today, and that's a a, a sort of a, a difficult thing to do. It's like going to the prayer meeting and praying or preaching on prayer. It sort of has this awkward tension then afterwards, whenever we come to pray publicly. Am I following what he said in the meeting? Am I following the the criteria or the example that he's given? And that's for you in the prayer meeting. But as a preacher comes to preach on preaching, I have to try and exemplify some of this as well. And we have a desire to make things as clear and as simple as possible. But I'll ask for your forgiveness before we get any further, because I am not a perfect preacher. But what I want to do this morning is to draw your attention and your focus upon the one that is. In history, as a church and as a denomination, as reformed and conservative, as fundamentalist Christians, we can look back into the history books at many uh, preachers of the gospel that we would adhere to, that we would love to have sat under. We would love to have been there in the, the excitement that was surrounding the days of the Reformation alongside Martin Luther alongside John Knox as he preached in Scotland in a powerful and in a mighty way, with unction from the Holy Spirit. We have loved to perhaps as as students of the Bible to be sitting under John Calvin as he demonstrated what the Scriptures mean. There are other more modern men. C.H. Spurgeon described as being the prince of preachers. Jonathan Edwards, a man that was described as being America's greatest theologian who saw revival even though he perhaps, as some would describe him, to be a bit of a calmer sort of person. He came into the pulpit, and some reckon that he just stood and read. I've read accounts that would contradict that, uh, but nonetheless, he was used of God. In whatever way or personality he had, Jonathan Edwards was used of God in America. George Whitfield, Wesley. These men have plaques even in our own land when they came across from England to minister the gospel out in the open air, out in the fields, in a powerful and in a mighty way, used by God the Holy Spirit to see multitudes saved. In our own denomination of recent, we've lost mighty preachers, Alan Cairns. I'm sure many of you have sat under his ministry in the past. Many of you have listened to his sermons and the recordings that we're so blessed with. And you can glean from preachers in days gone by, but every single one of these preachers, as well as this preacher, most of all, as we come to see the preacher of preachers. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, who sent himself into this world to not just save his people from their sins, but to minister unto us, to serve us. We all, every single one of us, must bow our knees before him, realizing and recognizing that we are nothing in comparison to him, and without him in the midst of our preaching, our preaching is all in vain. And while I may have already emphasized to you something of of my desire to, to preach on preaching for the purpose of God, the Holy Spirit, coming and perhaps putting that burden on your heart, on the heart of younger individuals that might be here or not necessarily being a a preacher in the sense you come into the pulpit and, and you engage in this task, that could be what God's calling you to do. But we all have been given a commission. 
We all have been called as Christians to go into all the world with his word, to preach it, to herald it, to proclaim it, to dialogue about it, to speak to others about this gospel which Jesus Christ came to preach. God had one son, and it's been said by many preachers in the past, he made him a preacher. He had one son, and he sent him to serve his people. He had one son, his only begotten, and he came into this world to tell and to teach about his kingdom. And that's what Mark tells us here in the chapter 1 of his book. He says in, in the verse number 14 that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it's his preaching that we're looking at here today. And I want you to see for a moment here the context of his preaching to begin with. And we'll see something of the characteristics that his preaching is marked by and all preaching should be marked by. And then I want you just to see in conclusion something of the content from the verse 15 of his preaching as well. But the context is important. Even coming to this church for the first time to preach myself and for the first time to be in this building and for the first time to see your faces as a congregation, really, there is a question mark. Who's going to be here? And again, I've emphasized to you already, there is something in the back of my mind that this is a word Perhaps that God is laying upon the heart of a young person to go and do something for God. When I came and I sat in the prayer meeting and I wondered, are there any young people going to be here? Thank God there are. But it's not just for the young people. This is a message that God has laid on my heart for a specific reason I might have in my mind. But the Holy Spirit takes this passage. He takes verses that I won't even refer to again. And the Holy Spirit might plant them in your soul so deep that they'll never be removed. And it'll impact your life for the rest of it. Every single day, perhaps, there might be a verse from Mark chapter 1 that you'll be able to look back to and say, this is why I do what I do. This is why I am what I am. It might be because God has saved you. Maybe on the 11th of February, 2024, whenever we come to the content of his preaching and see what he emphasizes as he speaks to the congregation, to the crowds around him, maybe this afternoon will be the day that you realize that your life must be changed. That something has to happen within your soul that has yet to happen. For others, it might be God pressing you into the service of the king to minister in some more public fashion. The context is important. And as we come to preach, it can, it can hinder us at times. It can make the preacher struggle to, to ply concrete, as it's often referred to. And the context is essential to, to think about. And his context was, it was really summarized in a couple of verses. There's not very much given by Mark. He's very succinct in what he says. But he tells us that Jesus Christ has been empowered in this chapter. He had been baptized by John the Baptist. And as he is baptized, what do we hear but that voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, God says. And at his baptism... Jesus Christ was empowered. Jesus Christ was appointed and anointed to do something in the world in a public way. Yes, up until this time, he had always been God's son up until this point. He had always been beloved by the Father up until this point. He had always had the Spirit with him. But at his baptism, he was given that specific and public remit to go and to preach, to go and to teach, to go and do something that he had not done before. And so he is empowered the announcement from God in heaven, the anointing of the Spirit, and his appointment to go and to do something takes place in the context of his preaching here in chapter 1. 
as well as his, his being empowered, John the Baptist is imprisoned. Verse 14, we've read it a couple of times already. We're told that John is in prison, and there's not much else said about it in this context here. Later on, we find a few more details. But it seems as though one of God's preachers has been silenced. A man of God that was declaring the Lamb of God, the one that he was not worthy to loose the latchet of his shoes. He has been preaching about this, this Christ, the Messiah to come, and he's been telling the crowds, he's here. And it seems the world creeps in snatches this powerful preacher from before them and silences him. And while the world might have thought they were succeeding in doing so, while the devil thought, ha, I've silenced another one of these prophets, the reality is that was not so. While John had been silenced, God would not be silenced. And as soon as John was imprisoned, Jesus began to preach. His word would be heralded by his son in light of the context of John being imprisoned. And really, in many ways, practically speaking, all of this would have been probably used by the Holy Spirit to publicize things even more. Oh, did you hear about John getting put in prison? Do you really believe what he was saying? And in that context, people become a bit curious to come out to hear why it is this other man, this relative of John, is now declaring himself as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of John's ministry. They come and they hear him. And they hear him in a place called Galilee. This is the scene that has been set. Jesus has been empowered. John has been imprisoned. And it's all taking place in Galilee. And Galilee is an interesting place just geographically speaking. The, the, the lake of Galilee or the body of water that is there is apparently the lowest uh, freshwater lake in the world. Lowest point. And you think about that even as it pictures for us what Jesus Christ was doing. He did not go to a high and lofty place to present his ministry and to commence his public ministry. He was willing to be humbled, to go to the small place, to go on with God even, and to do that work of God in a place that was unknown until he stepped foot upon it. He wasn't too fancy to speak to those that were too low to be acknowledged and respected by the religious rulers of the day. Christ in one sense, could go no lower. The only other body of water that is lower than the Sea of Galilee, as it's described, is apparently the Dead Sea. He could go no lower than death itself at this stage of his ministry for his people. He is willing to condescend from the courts of heaven to come and to be a preacher and to serve his people. This is the context of his ministry, the context of his preaching. But the character of his preaching is the second thing I want you to notice. Because this is something not just really that is unique to him, but this should be the example that we all follow. Every single preacher should know what it is to come to the examples of the Scriptures, not just of Jesus Christ here, but also of the Apostle Paul and Peter and others that are displayed as being preachers of the gospel, and to try to learn something from them. And there are various characteristics of preaching that are discovered here in this passage, and they're obvious. There's nothing new coming from this pulpit today. Uh, But there's three things I want you to notice about his character uh, when he comes to preach. It was a public uh, ministry. He publicly declared God's word. It was a pointed ministry. As he preaches, his message was pointed. He didn't sort of uh, dance around the bush or dance around the topic. No, he gets straight into the the, the issue at hand and he, he points a finger at people. His ministry was pointed as well as powerful. Public, pointed, and powerful. And as we've tried to highlight, this isn't just for preachers. 
It's not just for prospective committee men, elders, missionaries, youth workers, Sunday school teachers. It's not just for those that are pushed out into the public aspect of the work. This could be for you as a grandmother, looking after the grandchildren, setting them on your knee, preaching. You might not have looked at it that way before, but it is preaching. Dialogue is, or dialogos is one of the Greek words that's used in the book of Acts that is translated very often as preach. Discuss, dialogue, converse. This is what we're called to do. And it does not just simply take place in a, in a pulpit within the four walls of a church. Every single one of us are called to preach in some form. Now, when it comes to what we're looking at here today, it is to be public in the sense that we are going out into the world with a message of hope, a message of reconciliation, a message of Jesus Christ. And in one sense, there is always in the back of my mind this question of what is true biblical preaching? Is this it? And obviously, we're not going to start a whole argument and debate about uh, whether or not this is true biblical preaching as it is exemplified in the Scriptures. But there is a little question in the back of my mind that asks, is, is this all it is? Personally, I don't believe that if we just confine our ministries to the pulpits that are confined within four walls, that we are doing what we're called to do as preachers. And looking at this passage again and thinking about the context and historically speaking, what is it that God has blessed most? It hasn't historically and biblically speaking been whenever men stand behind sacred desks such as this. There is a purpose. God wants you to come here as a congregation to be instructed through the preaching of the word but I think the heart of true biblical preaching is found out there. Something the world does not want to hear. In the open air. You read your Bible. When is it that God moves? When is it that God speaks? When is it that nations are turned upside down? Not just biblically speaking, but historically speaking. We mentioned some preachers of the past. Wesley and Whitfield. They didn't have pulpits. They were out in fields just like that back there. And the people came to hear. John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the apostles, they went out into the streets and they presented the gospel message. And we cannot lose that. We cannot lose that. We must go out to the world to bring the gospel to them in the public. The preacher in this context, and the word that's used here in Mark's gospel, has the idea of being a herald. Heralding the message. Being one that is, is, is there to to give a specific divine message and it is to be shouted this is the whole idea of it we have a divine appointment to shout the message loud and clear for all the world to hear this was the characteristics of christ's preaching he had a purpose in reaching many you think about television the TV stations, the broadcasts, the movies, whenever they're making them, they don't sort of have this idea that, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll make it so it satisfies that little small community of people over there that numbers about 200 people. That's not the purpose. They, they don't care about the little 200 people there in some wee far off corner of, of the world that maybe it has no interest in the television show that they're, they're trying to, to, to create or whatever. They want to reach the multitudes TV is made to be watched by millions. Radio is made to be listened by millions again in our day. Books are made to be read. And just like all of that, preaching is preached to be heard, to be believed, to be listened to. The purpose is to reach the multitudes. 
And thankfully today we have other ways of doing that as well, media, online. But again, none of it makes up for going to the people, as far as I am concerned anyway. Biblical preaching must be public. Christ, his preaching was public. It was also pointed. It's my belief, and again, Christ gives us examples of this. He says, repent ye. He's pointed in his preaching. I don't think preaching is preaching today unless it has words like you and our in it, alongside words that demand something of us, that we must be, that we must do, that you must live and act and respond in such a way. Preaching has to have something that we respond to. But even that sort of preaching that has the use and, and, and describes what we must do and, and really preaches upon what we must be as individuals, it's less and meaningless unless it has pronouns such as he, him, and his. Because preaching is to point not just to you as the congregation, but it is also to point to him as the one that leads us and directs us in our living. Every single one of us, and if God would call you today to be a preacher of the gospel message, you must be pointed in your preaching. There's no point getting up and, and sort of being airy-fairy about some people out there and some other congregation down there or this and that. We need to speak to the people that are in front of us, and you need to speak to the people that are before you, if God would call you. We must have a word for them, and I pray that God has a word for you. But Christ points to himself, points to his Father, points to his kingdom. And in that sense, his, point, his preaching is pointed and directed. True preaching must point out areas that might need correction, areas of sin in our lives. It must not be afraid. It must be fearless. Verse 3 of the hymn 203 that we were singing earlier on, it's talking in a slightly different context. It talks about the waves of sorrow rolling over us. Whenever we're in distress, Jesus takes my hand in his. Ever he loves to bless. In the middle of the part of that verse, it says, He will every fear dispel and satisfy every need. All who heed his loving call find rest indeed. The context is for those that are perhaps going through trials in their lives, and that is all well and good, but for our purposes here this morning, you might be afraid to speak. You might think it to be impossible for you to speak. To your grandchildren, to your children, to your family members, never mind in a pulpit. But he will every fear dispel. And he will be able to meet every need to all that heed his loving call. You'll find true rest in your life if you know what it is to heed his call to serve. His preaching was powerful. It was public, it was pointed, and it was powerful preaching. We need to have power in preaching today. You need to pray for your minister. You need to pray for our denomination. Preaching on preaching isn't pointless as you might think when it comes to a congregation that may not be filled with preachers, you can think about all these various things and use them as prayer points. You can think about all these various things and, and ask yourself, is this what God is calling me to do? Is this what he has for me in the future? Pray that God will help us in the public ministry of his word. Pray that God will help us to be pointed and to be direct and to be clear whenever we present the scriptures as a denomination. But above all of that, and in light of all of that, pray that there would be power in the pulpits once again. Not just ours. Our denomination needs God to move. But many of the men that we've listed at the beginning of our service in our introduction to the sermon, they weren't free Presbyterians. 
They came from places that were obscure. Some of them began their ministries as Roman Catholics. Standing with God's word opened up, studying it in a monastery. And God used his word to change and to transform not just their hearts, but the world, literally. Pray for your community, for individuals that open up the gospel, even though it may not be the best translation of it. Pray that God's word would have power, even in pulpits, before men would open their mouths. They would be convicted down in the town. Men that have never preached the gospel in its full. Men that have never come to the content of Jesus Christ preaching that's very clearly and plainly laid out for us in verse number 15. Maybe as they would read these words themselves, repent ye and believe the gospel. May God move in cold, dead denominations. May you move in ours. And may we realize that that definition isn't all that far from our own circles here today. Our denomination needs to be awakened. Our preachers need to be empowered. There needs to be a move of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, in 50 years' time, God will raise up another witness, and they'll be praying for our churches, that our ministers will know it is to be saved. God needs to move. God needs to breathe upon us from heaven. We need to have the power of the Holy Spirit in our preaching, in our pulpits, in our churches, in our ministers, in our elders, in our denomination, from the pews right up to the pulpit. Whenever God commissions men to preach, he promises to fill, to be with us, to guard us and to protect us. And we need to ask that he'd continue to do so, even within our own circles as a free Presbyterian denomination. The last point is the content of his preaching, his subject, it is very clearly pointed out in the verse number 14. It is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. He comes and he wants to make it very plain and clear that while you live in his context, in a Roman-dominated uh, sort of era, uh, that there is another option. And in our own context, in our own current Affairs in this world, when you look at the, the, the current kingdoms that are around us and that we are a part of even today, when you look at the corruption that is there and the confusion that is on every hand, praise God we have another option to think about when it comes to the kingdom that we are a part of, that we are members of, that we can serve under. It is God's kingdom that must be manifest in this world and it is to be manifested in us and it is to be demonstrated in us, in our lives, as we live. All these other kingdoms around us, they will come and they will go, they will fall and they will rise. But for thousands of years since he spoke these words, his kingdom has been growing, steadfast, unmovable. The gates of hell have yet to prevail against it. His subject was the gospel of the kingdom, but his statements that he, he uses and he wants to draw out in regards to this is that, that of time. We mentioned about this earlier on, but it says, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. This is really, in a sense, his first point, if you want to think about it, in our own modern way of preaching today. Uh, one of the statements, one of the points that he makes about this kingdom of God is that it is at this specific time. The word used in the Greek, it isn't just really this general idea of time, but is talking about an appointed time. That God had appointed a time from history past that would take place as Jesus Christ would open his mouth. That he was there to begin building his kingdom in a, in a more specific and in a primary sense there and then. 
that he had been sent from heaven for the purpose of beginning to build that church and to fulfill all the prophecies. And for something to have been fulfilled, it first had to be foretold. And so the whole of the Old Testament is the foretelling of what he was now fulfilling. He came to preach, he came to build, he came to instruct, he came to save his people from their sins, and he came to set up a kingdom in this world. And yes, we have different ideas of what that might look like in our denomination, but nonetheless it has begun, and it is here now, and it will continue forever and ever and ever and ever. And the question is, are you a part of it? Yes, it might look like something that is drab and something that isn't very exciting today whenever we come to our churches up and down our land and on all of our congregations that are, are emptying out, it seems. Every single door, it seems as though people are just spewing out of them. Young people aren't coming back. Individuals aren't being saved. They're going back into the world. It might look like the kingdom isn't being built, but God is still at work. And I don't believe that because I see it happening. I believe that because this is what's declared in the Bible, and by faith we must continue in that belief. To believe that our land will one day know what it is to be turned around again, as it was turned around at the commencement of our denomination. That revival will spread once again. That the kingdom that Jesus Christ describes as being at hand in verse 15, that it will also be known in our land. And that it will continue and grow and prosper. This is an appointed time. This is a time of salvation. Now, you may have a doctor's appointment for next week, and you probably don't in our current circumstances. You might have to ring them first thing tomorrow morning and be on the phone for an hour and a half or so trying to get an appointed time. But whenever you are given an appointment or you get that letter from the hospital, it, it is specific. There is a specific time for you to attend. For the younger ones that might be here, maybe it's a birthday party. You get a little card that's through the door and you know that there's a specific time. And you expect, you expect that whenever you arrive at that place, at that time, that the party will be there, that the doctor will be there. You have an expectation, something like faith. You have faith that the doctor is going to be there to see you at that appointed time. We need to have faith that God will meet us whenever we go whenever we do his will, whenever we serve him. This is a part of his statements, but the last thing that he, he really draws out, and with this we'll conclude in the few moments that we have remaining, he, he talks about the subjects, the gospel of the kingdom of God, various statements about that kingdom of God, that the time would be fulfilled, and that we need to be ready for that time, the kingdom being at hand, that it is something that is now. But the last little part of verse 15 simply says, repent, ye and believe the gospel his subject his statements about that subject and then our submission to it your submission to it my submission to it to repent is something that we as free presbyterians are familiar with we've heard it preached over and over again we know what it is to turn we know what it is to flee from sin. We know what it is to run to Jesus Christ. But I think that is the primary point of repentance. It is to run to Jesus Christ. Far too many people talk about having to turn from their sin first. And yes, there's an aspect of that in your repentance. But in order to turn from your sin, you must turn to Jesus Christ. The two must go hand in hand. And there are far too many people in this world today that have some form of religion. They know the gospel. They know the Bible. And you might be one of them here today. And you think to yourself... My life's not what it should be. 
I'm not living as I ought to be. I know what's right. I know what's godly. I know what's holy for Christians. And I'm not any of that. How could I be a Christian? How could I be saved? How could I be one of God's chosen people? How could I be one of the number of the flock that will spend eternity in heaven with him in light of all that I am and all that I have done? Repentance doesn't call you to ponder all of the things that you have done in that sense and to dwell upon them. It wants you to ponder him. It wants you to run to Christ. It wants you to see him in his glory. It wants you to look and to live with the sight of him in heaven. And as you look and as you live in Jesus Christ, all of that old life will it'll not go away. All of those old temptations will not just disappear. You'll struggle for years and years and years with the same old sins. And even when you think you've killed them, they'll raise their ugly head again and again and again. And you'll have to fight them again and again. But how do we fight them? We go to Jesus Christ. We look to his word. We live in him. And he lives in us. It's not about you turning over a new leaf and becoming a Christian, doing the best that you can. It's about looking to Jesus Christ who has done it all for us and who has succeeded in conquering sin, winning the victory over death, in conquering the grave. Repentance, in my mind, first and foremost, is a looking to him. And yes, in doing so, it is also looking away from your sin. But see him. As we conclude, do you believe that he, he came from heaven as God's son? Can you see him hung upon a tree? Can you see the son of God who was perfect? The God man who preached powerfully, who lived perfectly but who died in pain and agony. Can you see him as your sin bearer? Do you believe him to be your savior? This is the good news here this morning, this afternoon even. You can look to Jesus Christ and you can see all that he is, the virgin-born son of God, perfect in every single way, who lived and preached a perfect message, who knew what it was to proclaim his truth, not just by word, but indeed saving souls physically as well as spiritually coming willingly to the cross to bear all of our sin and shame. This is the one that we exhort you to turn to, to run to, to repent and to believe in. Do you believe that he can save you? Do you believe that he was buried for three days and truly died as a punishment for your sin? Do you believe that after three days he rose in the power of God and in his own power because he was God? Victory over sin, over your sin, over my sin, over the sin of all of his people and all of their sins. Do you believe that he was then ascended into heaven, risen not just from a tomb, but accepted to reign as king forever and ever, all because of his success as savior? That's what we're called to believe. That this man that lived 2,000 years ago was no ordinary man, but he was God's son. More than that, he is God's son. And here this afternoon, sitting where you are, he can save you.
And perhaps he will call you to go and seek out the lost and to win them for his own glory and for his name. Let's just bow together as we conclude our service this morning. And with these thoughts, let's pray to the King that came to serve us. And let us know what it is in light of that to come and to serve him and to bring glory to his name. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are merciful and that you are gracious and that all that would repent and all that would believe can have that full assurance that they are thy children. And Lord, maybe there are some here this morning and they have looked at their lives, they have backslidden, they have become cold of heart, they have not been serving you. Lord, help them to see that you are a powerful God and able to change their circumstances, able to save them from themselves and able to set them up as ambassadors for Christ, to be spokespersons for God. Lord, no matter our context, no matter our walk in life, we ask that you'd make us all proclaimers and heralds of thy good news. And Lord, we ask that your people here in this part of the vineyard I know what it is to see many souls come to Jesus Christ. But again, Lord, I, I lay my own personal burden before you here again. Lord, there is a need for the fields that are white and ready unto harvest. If it be thy will, or come and lead and guide some individuals from this flock to serve the Lord in a more public fashion, burden them over this matter. More than that, break them over this matter and make them vessels fit for the master's use that we all might be used in the building and the extension of thy glorious kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.